Welcome to the Football Business Academy podcast. The FBA is a football business educational company entirely dedicated to the football industry. We run a professional master in football business and a number of certificates across the world. Thank you for being with us today. Now enjoy the episode and let's build the future of football together. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are tuning in from. Welcome to the second episode of our free weekly live webinars brought to you by the Football Business Academy. My name is Christian Dobrev. I'm the Chief Partnerships Officer at the Football Business Academy, and I'll be moderating this webinar. Today, we have the pleasure of welcoming David Goldblatt, who is the FBA's Professor on Global Football History, as well as Political Economy of Football. He's a writer, a broadcaster, and an academic, and he's acclaimed books, The Ball is Round and The Game of Our Lives, have built his reputation as arguably the world's top football historian. All of the FBA alumni can vouch for the fact that David's sessions are nothing short of fascinating as he weaves together his investigative research, travel anecdotes, and uncountable conversations with football fans into works of vivid storytelling. His session today will be no different. Titled Football in a Time of Crisis, World Wars, Revolutions, and Climate Catastrophe, his webinar will be broken down into six parts and we'll look at how football has faced crises throughout history and what lessons we might want to take going into the 2020s. And then without further ado, David, welcome to this webinar. It's a pleasure having you. How are you? I'm okay, given uh, the situation. Thank you very much for that introduction, Christian. Okay, well, hello to everybody out there. Uh, I imagine if you're anything like uh, I am and everybody in my house is, it's difficult to concentrate on pretty much anything. So I really appreciate you being with us and I will do my best to be engaging, entertaining and relevant. As Christian said, we're gonna take a look at some of the history of football through periods of crisis, uh, world wars uh, and previous pandemics uh, and ask if there are any useful historical lessons to be learned. We'll be taking a look at the First World War, the Second World War, some of the um, war situations since the Second World War, uh, a series of pandemics that have occurred during the last decade or so, because coronavirus certainly isn't the first of these, nor is it likely to be the last. Before concluding, what lessons can be learned from all of this? And what does this, how does this speak to the future of football in the next 10, 15 years? So to begin with the First World War, um, only two countries uh, in 1914 have professional football, England and Scotland. And so it's a rather narrow range really to be thinking about. But nonetheless, it's um, instructive. And um, like our own time, there was a burst of initial optimism that the war would be over by Christmas and nothing much would really have to change. This, of course, was quickly disabused when it became clear that the war would be going on for some time. Some sports reacted very quickly in England and Scotland to the war, and um, rugby in particular immediately cancelled its um, uh, programme of uh, games, while cricket finished the season but offered patriotic uh, messages, including the captain of the Yorkshire team ostentatiously leaving the field mid-game to go and join his local regiment. Football carried on as normal. 
The idea being that this would be good for morale and maintain a sense of normality in an otherwise strange era. Perhaps more significantly, it was realized very quickly by the British state that it had remarkably few tools for engaging with the male population of the country to whom it needed to speak, and football provided a channel for doing so. As a consequence, through late 1914 and early 1915, football and football matches served as one of the main recruiting tools of the British state, and indeed uh, 2,000 out of 5,000 unmarried professionals um, uh, signed up um, for military service in the first six months after the outbreak of the war, and over 100,000 recruits uh, were garnered from appeals that went out at football matches and through football clubs. Half of all of the initial burst of volunteer recruits at the beginning of the First World War. This, for some, however, was not enough. And it became clear in 1915 there was a great undertow of uh, negative attitudes towards football uh, and its role in the war, particularly from the ultra-nationalist right. For example, F.N. Charrington, a scion of the House of Guinness and a noted right-winger, wrote in the Times, what an appalling contrast it is to the fact that the three well-known international Belgian footballers have already given their lives for their country. The thickest flannel petticoat should now be provided for our footballers. He then uh, made a similar speech berating football fans and football clubs at Fulham in late 1914. And such was the violence and anger of the crowd, he had to be escorted by the police from the stadium. More representative of elements of the political class in the era was E.H.D. Sewell, who wrote in the Times contrasting rugby and football, the sooner the army as a whole takes up rugger, the better for Tommy. Let soccer remain the exercise of the munitions workers who suffer so much from varicose veins, weak knees, cod-eyed toes, fowl's liver, and a general dislike for a man's duty. By spring of 1915, it was pretty clear, whatever your politics, football could not continue. The number of players was disappearing, crowds thinned, as men uh, signed up for the army, and above all, the railway network, essential for allowing uh, the fixture list to continue on a nationwide basis, became increasingly controlled for military purposes. The FA Cup, played in uh, late spring 1915, was thus the final uh, note for football in the First World War. The Second World War, Prevents us, presents a slightly different picture, in part because football had now spread as a professional spectacle to many more nations, certainly in Europe and Latin America. Secondly, its cultural status and significance was much higher by 1939 than it had been in 1914. And perhaps most significantly, governments and civil servants had learnt by this time that the dynamics of fighting a total war required much closer attention to the morale and emotional and psychological disposition of the population. Two examples prior to the conventional outbreak of the Second World War in 1939 give us some clue as to how the historical record plays out. Firstly, Japan and China. In 1937, Japan invaded China, which certainly in East Asia is actually considered the beginning of the Second World War. 
And such was the brutality and comprehensiveness of that military conflict that football in China, albeit thin on the ground prior to 1937, entirely disappeared until after the completion of the Chinese Revolution in 1949. The other precursor of the Second World War was the Spanish Civil War, fought between 1936 and 1939, broadly speaking between the Republican left and the fascist monarchist right. Two points come out from the Spanish Civil War. First, that football serves in uh, eras of conflict as an important instrument of messaging and morale building. Barcelona, despite being under siege for much of the era, managed a series of uh, international tours um, uh, telling the world the situation in the Republic through the medium of football, uh, a strategy replicated almost 20 years later by the FLN team of the Algerian resistance to French occupation, who created their own football team and toured much of the uh, Soviet bloc and other parts of the uh, global south to support and publicize the case of the Algerian struggle against French colonialism. Um, the other story from the, the Spanish Civil War that seems relevant to me is the extent to which uh, the right as well as the left have used football as an instrument of uh, political messaging. And um, previously, pretty much disinterested in football. The right, the militarists um, came to see that football and sport was exceptionally important in reaching uh, a part of the population that mass media hitherto had failed to connect to. And it is worth remembering that Marca, the uh, great Spanish uh, sports daily, was founded by the Falangist regime in 1938 as an explicit part of its communication strategy with the Spanish public. Once the war breaks out in Europe in 1939, the experience of football diverges greatly amongst countries. In England and Scotland, for example, having learned the lessons of the First World War, there is no intention to ban football entirely. On the contrary, there is a recognition that maintaining football uh, in some form or another um, is a powerful tool for creating a sense of normality. Um, however, um, they have also learned by this point that maintaining professional football in its conventional form with the league and the FA Cup and so on was no longer possible under conditions of total war. As a consequence, a halfway house is created in which regional competitions, charity matches, newly invented clubs and teams play each other in a rolling programme of charity matches, exhibition matches and mini tournaments. The fate of football in the occupied zones of uh, Europe is um, somewhat different, very much depending on uh, the nature of the German occupation. So we find in Denmark, which is effectively led to self-government for much of the Second World War, football carries on much as it had done prior to the outbreak of war. So too, to a lesser extent, in the Netherlands uh, and in France, where the occupation is more serious and more onerous, but enough space was left to cooperative local governments um, to continue to stage the game at some level or another. More uh, devastating is the experience of Yugoslavia, Greece and Poland, where the German occupation was vicious, bitter 
and violent. As a consequence, from the moment of the German invasion of all three of those countries, not a single game of professional football is played until the end of hostilities in 1945. Norway is an interesting outlier because Norway, on the one hand, has a very clear German occupation and German control of national government. And there is an attempt to maintain a uh, sense of normality under these conditions by allowing the Football League to continue. Interestingly, Norwegians take this as an opportunity to find acts of resistance to the occupation. The Norwegian public, literally to a person, refuses to attend any of the games that are staged under German occupation. We find that one of the Norwegian cups of the era has as few as 40 people attending them, and they no doubt were members of the local German-aligned bureaucracy and their tufts. Indeed, sport functioned as an act of resistance during the occupation in Norway, with football matches and skiing competitions being organised by the resistance and held deep in the snowy forests of northern Norway. The experience of the Axis powers, not surprisingly, is slightly different. In both Italy and Germany, with active government support, huge efforts are made to maintain the normality of football and the football season, all the way through to 1942. Von Ribbentrop, the foreign minister of the Third Reich, actually records in his diaries that he placed the highest value on German teams playing competitive matches during the war. And Fritz Walter, later the captain of the West German team that will win the 1954 World Cup, noted in his um, biography that he was mobbed by uh, enlisted German soldiers in Italy when he himself was a soldier. And he reflected that he reminded them of the things that had seemed to have gone forever, peace, home, and sport. Extraordinarily, in June 1941, on the day that the uh, Third Reich unleashed Operation Barbarossa and invaded the Soviet Union, the final of the German football season was played in Berlin in front of 100,000 people. Efforts to maintain this normality, though, turned in 1942. And um, once again, von Ribbentrop records in his diaries his dismay at the Germans being beaten in an international friendly against Sweden played midway through the year. By the end of 1942, all attempts to maintain the normality of the football season, both domestically and internationally, in Germany and Italy, are abandoned. And football falls silent so that the slaughter may continue till 1945. In more recent years, a number of wars or warlike situations have had a footballing dimension to them. One that seems interesting to me is the uh, role of football in Iran during the Iran-Iraq War, 1979 until the late 1980s. The theological regime that came to power in the revolution in 1979 was always fearful, indeed disdainful of football, as a foreign game and one potentially un-Islamic in a variety of ways. And there was a serious effort to ban the game. However, like many regimes fighting total war beforehand, they found that the maintenance of morale was absolutely central to the prosecution of the war. 
And by 1983, the regime has actually given in to its people and allowed football, albeit under strict control of the religious authorities, to resume. More recently, from our own time, we have found in the many struggles in the forever war against Salafists across uh, Africa, uh, the Middle East and West Asia, football has had a peculiar place. Many of those organizations from Al-Shabaab to ISIS to Al-Qaeda have attempted to ban football, both the watching of football, the playing of football and the following of football. And Al-Shabaab in particular have taken the opportunity of large gatherings to watch football games to set um, uh, bombs and attacks with devastating uh, effects. Many, many, many people killed. And yet even here, even here, ISIS, uh, Al-Shabaab have actually had to concede to the popularity of football. ISIS in particular, uh, it seems, have uh, uh, permitted foreign fighters um, during the establishment of the Caliphate to play football, to watch football on satellite, and even to play football video games on their smuggled uh, PS4s and Xboxes. Other incidences of crisis in the post-war era that are worth dwelling on uh, in terms of football and disaster are first the abandonment of the uh, 1986 World Cup by Colombia, the, uh, then the planned hosts, who in the midst of the uh, terrible narco wars uh, of the early 1980s, returned the tournament to FIFA, which was then held in Mexico in 1986. Prior to, of course, to the uh, 1986 World Cup, Mexico City suffered one of its most devastating earthquakes, killing tens of thousands of people. Um, it is interesting in that regard that both the political and the football authorities uh, tried to play down the impact of the disaster, suggesting that everything was on course. And indeed, there was more urgency than ever uh, in establishing the games. The rather cold-hearted comment of uh, Joao Havelange, then president of FIFA, in his letter to the Mexican authorities was, the earthquake has respected football. A note that uh, illustrated that despite the devastation, none of the football stadiums for the 1986 World Cup were hit by the earthquake. More recently, in 2001, Colombia uh, was on the verge of abandoning the 2001 Copa America, when once again the narco wars and their conflict with FARC was at a peak, with bombs going off all over Bogota, as well as many of the cities that were planning to host the tournament. It was treated like a national emergency, with virtually a lockdown across the country, the mass mobilisation of the army, and the staging of the tournament under severe and restricted circumstances. While all of this seems to me really interesting, I am not convinced that war is a terribly useful historical comparator for our own moment or for the future. The misapplication of war to great social events and great social problems often brings more problems than it solves. I think in particular of the disastrous consequences of the war on drugs and the war on terror, which might better have been treated as um, issues of public health and international diplomacy rather than war. Moreover, it's worth remembering that war in the end is about the execution of massive violence. And whatever the solutions to our current dilemma, it seems to me that the mobilization and use of violence is not an applicable 
thought to the problems that we have. So are there more uh, useful comparisons that can be made? Well, certainly in the last decade or so, it is worth remembering on a number of occasions that football has been impacted by a series of both local and global pandemics. The 2003 Women's World Cup, let us remind ourselves, was moved from China because the SARS outbreak, a, a, vir a virus not dissimilar to the one that we currently face, was raging through the country. In 2008, Zimbabwe lost much of its football season um, to uh, a massive outbreak of cholera. And indeed, it seems that a number of games um, that were played during the cholera outbreak um, uh, led to a massive increase in infections and a spread of the disease. In 2009, swine flu was the particular pandemic sweeping around the world. And Mexico, one of the epicenters of the um, uh, swine flu outbreak, was forced to play much of the season behind closed doors. And then most devastating of all in 2015, the outbreak of Ebola in West Africa saw football come to a halt entirely in Liberia, Sierra Leone, and other parts of the region. Indeed, football stadiums were converted into both hospitals and morgues, and football and footballers were mobilized as instruments of social messaging, encouraging citizens to wash their hands, their most effective way of uh, controlling uh, the disease in the region at the time. So where does that leave us right now? And how does that help us think about the present moment? As I've said, I'm not convinced that the situation that we face right now and the problems that we are gonna face in the future are best conceptualized through the lens of war. Certainly football's role in war as an instrument of messaging and of social solidarity and of normalization relies upon social clustering, the warmth and the humanity of the football crowd. Whereas our own era very clearly requires social distancing. And as I suspect, um, when the, um, the reckoning comes down the line, we will find that many football games, in particular the Atalanta-Valencia Champions League game that was held in the early stages of the outbreak of the pandemic in Italy and Spain, will have served as a very significant vector for moving the virus around Europe. So too the Atletico Madrid versus Liverpool game just a few weeks ago. I think reflecting on the historical evidence that our own moment and the experience of this pandemic are actually the most useful for thinking about the future of football and the future of football in crisis situations. Because I believe, based on the evidence, that this is not the last time we will be dealing with such cataclysmic problems. There are more pandemics coming down the line to us. As I've said, in the last 10 years, we've dealt with SARS, we've dealt with Ebola, we've dealt with swine flu. This did not come out of the blue. This is going to happen again. So what are the, what are the lessons immediately that we can take from this moment? The first, it seems to me, is that we need to listen to the science. 
it is not as if epidemiologists and virologists have not been predicting precisely the scenario that we find ourselves in. Yet, like so many of the warnings that we have received about cataclysmic events, we have collectively, and above all our political elites and media, have chosen to diminish them, to ignore them, or to try and undermine them through the spreading of denialist ideology and argument. The second thing I think that we have learned from this moment is that the worst case scenario really can happen. It is not scaremongering. It is not an outlier. This is the course of humanity on this planet for the rest of our lives. Thirdly, the more you prepare, the more ready you will be to deal with the problem. The less you prepare, the more you will suffer. And perhaps most important of all, we have learned that what was once deemed impossible is now possible. The idea that economic imperatives could be overruled to deal with matters of public health is now tangible and obvious. The idea that there is sufficient money in this world to address a whole series of injustices and practical problems, again, deemed the magic money tree and impossible just weeks ago, is again completely tangible. And something bigger is coming our way. Climate catastrophe, it seems to me, falls into a similar space in terms of our response and attitude to it, to this current pandemic. We have chosen hitherto not to listen to the science. We have chosen hitherto not to prepare. We have chosen hitherto to listen to the voices that says massive structural change, the mobilization of both state and civil society to protect public health and the future is not possible. All of these things are now possible. And all of these things are coming the way of global sport and global football. Let me just give you a few examples. In 2019, at the Rugby World Cup, two games had to be abandoned because of the climactic conditions. This is coming to global football very soon. There is no way that future tournaments and indeed regular league programmes will not be affected by extreme climatic events. Indeed, the evidence that has been gathered suggests that the number of games in Europe being lost to climatic problems is steadily increasing over the last four or five years. The Tokyo 2020 games, now moved to 2021, had already begun to deal with these problems because the, it turned out that the marathon and the long distance running and walking events simply could not be held in Tokyo in the summer, given the transformation of the climate in that region. It is also worth noting that the Tokyo Organising uh, Committee, amongst the worst liars I can find in the world of global sport, actually said in their bid document, based on staging the Tokyo Games of 1964 in October rather than August, and without 40 years of climate change being taken note of, that Tokyo offered the perfect environment uh, climatically for staging the Games. Earlier this year, Games at the um, Australian Tennis Open were disrupted 
by the smoke coming into Sydney, by the terrible bushfires. Amazingly, I thought in January, well, this is the environmental wake-up call of the year. And now it is almost like a footnote compared to our current conjuncture. In a survey of the Winter Olympic hosts of the last 40 years by the University of Waterloo in Canada, we have discovered that only four of them at the moment could be guaranteed to stage a Winter Olympics again without a major risk of there being insufficient snow and ice for the event to go ahead. The speed that climate change is moving at the moment suggests that not merely the Winter Olympics, but every kind of winter sports is deeply, deeply imperiled. Golf, not normally thought of as a home of environmental activism, has actually begun to wake up to some of these issues. And indeed, golf in terms of water use and other uh, environmental amelioration has proved a pace setter. No wonder. One third of all Lynx courses, those courses that are by the sea, are currently in danger of being swept away by the rise in sea levels that is surely coming to us. Cricket, too, is having problems. In Melbourne, the traditional Boxing Day game, the jewel in the crown of the Australian cricket calendar, now seems imperiled because the heat at the height of the Australian summer is making it deeply dangerous for athletes and participants. So too, the Indian uh, Premier League. And once again, the numbers of days lost in cricket to extreme climate are steadily climbing all over the world. While in the Caribbean, many cricket stadiums have been destroyed or brutally damaged by the spate of unprecedented strength hurricanes that have hit the islands in the last decade. Football is not going to miss out on all of these things. Football is going to be affected by all of these forms of climate, extreme climate moments. It's going to be affected by sea level when you remember how many football stadiums are close to the sea and um, at or at sea level or only just above. One wonders what the fate, for example, of the Stade Velodrome in Marseille will be 10 or 15 years down the line if the current rates of sea level rise in the Mediterranean continue as they are. Moreover, global sport in general, and football in particular, are significant contributors to the problem. The IOC um, and its Olympic Games create gigantic levels, a huge carbon footprint. The World Cup's carbon footprint is equally vast, and that is to say nothing of the literally thousands of tournaments, games, and events being held around the world. From transport, to plastic use, to the construction of stadiums, to the mode of transportation by which fans reach stadiums, all of these things are significant contributors. So what are we going to do about it? Where do we go with this kind of information? I want to suggest the first thing, difficult as it may be to stomach, when we are all desperately missing football, and we all wish that football would start once again, and we could all go back to normal, is that there is no normal. There is no going back to where we have been. 
there has to be a profound rethink and a profound set of structural changes in all global sporting industries, in every kind of industry, in every walk of life. If we are to listen to the scientists, if we are to take the scientific evidence seriously, if we are to acknowledge the profound threat that climate catastrophe places on society as a whole and on sport in particular, we need to act now and we need to act radically. One of the events that was going to happen this year that I suspect won't be happening face to face at any rate is the 26th uh, Climate Change Conference of the UN. And interestingly, one of the subsections of that conference was going to be on the UN's uh, framework for sport and climate change, a serious and important initiative that seeks to bring the world of sport in line with many other industrial and service sectors to make its contribution to the changes that need to be made to keep global temperature rises below an average of two degrees centigrade. What does it have to say? Where do we go with that? Well, it's not a very detailed document. You can find it online, no problem, at the UN's website. It's essentially a framework for beginning the process, to begin to bring organizing bodies, leagues, clubs of all kind into the conversation and debate, and to lay out in institutional and bureaucratic terms the minimal things that they need to do to bring football towards a carbon zero situation. That said, it still relies on the idea that we've got till 2050, and it relies on the idea that a two degree C rather than a 1.5 degree C change in average global temperatures will be adequate. I would dispute both of those. All the evidence seems to suggest that we need to act by 2030, and we need to be as ambitious in, as, in, as possible in our reduction in global heating. There is some contribution from football to these um, debates. FIFA have signed up to the climate framework, UEFA have signed up to the climate framework, and UEFA in particular has done serious and good work around Euro 2020 in an effort to make it more carbon neutral than any football tournament hitherto. Yet only two football clubs have actually signed up so far, Olympic Lyonnais and Forest Green Rovers, here in the fourth level of English football, but pioneers of a sustainability model for the game that we all have a great deal to learn about. And there are serious innovations being made in the Bundesliga and amongst German football clubs as well. The greater use of public transport for ferrying fans to the stadium, the use of sustainable materials in the building of stadiums, the reduction of single-use chemicals, the introduction of organic and sustainable non-pesticide practices in the, in the creation of pitches. But there is so much more to be done. And as Greta Thunberg would say, the house is on fire, people. We need to act like the house is on fire. So let me conclude this conversation and welcome your comments by suggesting a five or six point plan for radical change in the near future in the world of football. First, all governing bodies should sign up to the UN framework for climate change. Every football association at a national, regional, uh, continental and global level must be members. 
And FIFA and the regional um, confederations should, I believe, say to their membership, if you do not sign up to this, you are no longer permitted to engage in international competition. It must be the sine qua non of any football association in this world that at the very least they have signed up and committed to the UN's framework for sport and climate change. Secondly, all clubs um, uh, from the very smallest to the very largest, from the poorest to the richest, must sign up as well to the UN's um, uh, framework for climate change. And again, there have to be sanctions. We've reached the point where asking nicely doesn't work. If people cannot see the urgency, they must be made to see the urgency. I propose that within a year, any club that has not signed up to the framework should either be excluded from national competitions or at the very least significantly docked points from those competitions. Thirdly, we need to introduce a massive process of sanctions-backed environmental audit in world football. We already have the model. The Bundesliga's annual economic audit of its clubs is forensic, detailed, and incredibly effective in making sure that clubs in Germany do not go into bankruptcy and do not overspend their limits. We need to do precisely the same with clubs' efforts to go carbon zero. Of course, this can't be done overnight. It has to be staged. But on an annual basis, every football club and organisation in this world needs to submit where it is in its plan and it is, it is making insufficient or no progress. There have to be real sporting sanctions, docking of points and exclusion from competitions. Fourthly, we have to bring to an end reliance on fossil fuel companies as sponsors. No more Gazprom, no more Socar. It is completely insane at this historical moment that football should be relying on such flagrant climate uh, deniers uh, and such flagrant creators of um, greenhouse gases for their income. Of course, contracts that are currently signed will have to be maintained but we need to bring in a cutoff date, perhaps 2025 or 2026, after which no fossil fuel company will be permitted to sponsor a football club, a regional confederation, a football association, or an international tournament. Lastly, and perhaps most radically and frighteningly of all, I have come to the conclusion that we have to think seriously about stopping the process of international competition and resetting the agenda. International competitions with their reliance on gigantic levels of aircraft traffic are amongst the most significant contributors of global sport to climate change. We need to make a difference. I propose that after the 2022-2026 World Cup for which the contracts are currently signed, we take a pause in international competition until it can be demonstrated that those future competitions will be carbon zero. I understand that this seems inconceivable, impossible, a punishment. What more, it seems in particular, in a world so fragmented, um, we need more than ever these moments of global and continental celebration of who we are.
And nothing delivers that better than the World Cup and the regional competitions around the world. And yet the moment is so serious and so profound, I believe we need to take this step. As my final thought to you, I want to suggest that football may actually be able to make a special contribution in some ways to this problem. I have thought for a long time that one of the reasons that football is so popular in this world is that it speaks profoundly to our moment of uncertainty, of chaos. As all of you will know, the emotional and ludic currency of football in a game is all about last minute reversals, about sudden changes of a heart, about doing the impossible. Well, that's precisely what we need. So for my final thought, and forgive me for not being able to do this from memory, I'm going to read the closing words of the book, The Ball is Round, which I wrote 15 years ago, but which today seems strangely prescient. No game embraces both the chaos and uncertainty, the spontaneity and reactivity of play like football. At no moment in our history has humanity faced a world so threatened by the former and been in so, need, so much need of the latter. After nearly a century and a half of global industrialization, whose geographical course and social organization carved the main channels into which the planet's football cultures have flowed, the world sits on the brink. Seven billion of us today have already taken the world's ecosystems to the point of catastrophe. In 2050, when they play the 29th World Cup finals, there will be 10 billion of us. China and India, absent from Germany 2006, will surely be there in 2050, consuming and competing at levels approaching the West. A vast, unintended and unstoppable experiment into the carrying capacity and robustness of the world's climate systems has been set in motion. It is not the gods of chaos that have unleashed this cataclysm. It is us. Living with profound risk and uncertainty is now the destiny of humanity. We are lucky then that the game we have chosen as our collective metaphor, the avatar of our social dilemmas, should so closely parallel our predicament. To place the world under the sign of play is to expose ourselves to the caprice of the ball. We must be bold enough to think that we have the guile, the heart and the wit to bring it under control. Well, thank you, David. We've um, My pleasure. people tuning in and um, putting some comments in the chat box saying how, uh, how fascinating your, your insights have been, um, both in terms of the, um, the history part of you, as well as the lessons that we can take forward. Uh, so thank you again for that. Um, I just wanted to touch a point um, that you said regarding football's responsibility in terms of making sure that this, well, it's going to happen again, as you said, but that football and society as a whole is prepared. Um, and I remember that you mentioned FIFA. Now, FIFA, they've signed an MOU with the World Health Organization just at the end of last year. Um, obviously, they couldn't probably have seen this coming, but... If we look at the news, we already see the likes of Gianni Infantino saying that maybe this is a time that can be used to look at a reduced calendar. Now, from someone that has, has been advocating 
for the increasing uh, of international competitions. How do you see that playing out over the next few months as we, as a, as a global community? I think that's, that's a welcome, that, that's very welcome. I mean, it's welcome that FIFA are talking to the World Health Organization. Um, it is welcome that Infantino in particular, as the main person pressing for more competitions and more global events, is at least clocking that this might be some kind of problem. And I should say, by the way, when I talk about World Cups and international events, I'm talking men's and women's, and I'm talking every age grade as well. I don't just mean the men's World Cup. So uh, I'm, we need to be clear on that. Um, I think it would be, I think we need to play less for the moment. And I don't have all the answers on this. I mean, I think this is, you know, is something that has to come out. There has to be agreement. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. So there needs to be a really big and a really serious conversation. I myself think that that conversation would go uh, more urgently and more effectively if we set a cutoff date for saying, actually, we need to stop for a bit. Um, and when we have a plan that is environmentally sustainable, in terms of carbon emissions, uh, as well as our contribution to pandemics, then we can restart. I mean, nothing would give me, I, I assure you, more pleasure than the idea that after a pause, we could relaunch the men's and the women's World Cup as truly carbon neutral events. I think that would make a huge contribution to the global debate. And the fact that we would have actually stopped them and taken a pause would have made um, their impact and significance of climate change for many people who just aren't or can't engage with the subject, really, really tangible. So I don't wanna lay down the law on, on, on this because I think there are people who understand scheduling issues much better than I, and above all, it needs to be a conversation amongst stakeholders. But what I would say is good that FIFA are doing this. I think we need to be very bold and radical and actually say, we have some cutoff dates, and if we haven't got it sorted out, we need to stop everything. Uh, and we need to be working towards real carbon zero solutions. And I recognise that global football, you know, and regional competitions require air transport. I mean, some you can do with a lot less. Um, in which case, in the absence of electric planes, we have to think very, very hard about um, you know set aside stuff. You know, I've noticed that um, a number of um, tournaments have attempted to invest in, you know, uh, reforestation schemes, for example, but have struggled because the number and the quality of reforestation scenes, your carbon uh, offsets, are very poor. And I think, once again, the big organisations in football can be a real force for saying these um, uh, carbon set-asides need to be massively expanded, they need to be globally regulated, and they need to be very serious. And I think that goes for sponsors too. You know, if you're going to be sponsoring, you know, the World Cup and you're spending $100 million on it, I would like to see $10 million of that immediately set aside for carbon zero activities. And I think this just goes across the board. Everybody's got to come in on this. Yeah, definitely. I think the time is right to take action together and uh, make sure that we don't re repeat uh, the same uh, mistakes that people have done in the history. Um, now I'd like to take some questions from, uh, from our audience that um, they've Please. put in the chat box. Adnan asked, uh, referring to the um, section on World War II, do we know if football was used as a propaganda tool in Germany as the Olympic Games was used? Well, yes and no. I mean, 
Hitler basically and Goebbels, once they'd experienced football, realised that, that it's too chaotic. Goebbels, you know, found watching the uh, football tournament, the 1936 World Cup, and this is recorded in his diary, as a terrible experience because he realised he couldn't fix it. It's all too on edge. And Germany got beaten by Peru and then were out of the tournament. And what a disaster that is. So football, um, they were much less interested in football um, for the most part. And, you know, the traditional sports that the uh, regime uh, valorized, you know, were much more militaristic. So they like shooting and fencing and equestrian events. And then the sort of, you know, high tech um, turbocharged testosterone of motor racing and boxing, of course, as well. And football was always, you know, rather looked down upon by the regime. Of course, by the time they get to the late 1930s, early 1940s, they've realized that whatever they think, the public likes football and they're simply not moving on that. So, you know, by 38 through to 1942, as I said in the talk, there is a real focus in the regime on using football on the one hand as an instrument of normalization uh, and on the other hand, sending out a political message more widely. Um, but it's only right at the end of the regime and it never acquires the kind of the cachet of the grand spectacle that was the 1936 Olympics. Speaking of normalization, um, you may have read as well that the likes of Belarus and Nicaragua uh, haven't suspended their football leagues yet. Do you think that's um, a case of normalization as well for their uh, political? I just part? think it's criminally insane is what I think. It's like, what are these people thinking? What are they thinking? I mean, you don't have to be an epidemiologist to realize the two most important things in this crisis are testing, 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 and social distancing. Football crowds. You can't be having football crowds in a pandemic. I mean, how? I, I don't know what. To, I don't know what to say. It's like if you can't see that. What you can you see, mind you, you know, the president of Belarus has been telling his public that the best way of dealing with coronavirus is to drink vodka and take saunas. So, you know, I'm not taking these guys as a, as a guide to this. I think it's mad. They need to stop. And if I could just speak to the moment, I also think that all the talk of re-establishing the season in uh, June and July is madness. It's absolute madness. We just have to accept that this season is done and dusted. You know, it is insane to be uh, gathering and, you know, also diverting security resources and medical resources, even to games played behind closed doors. You know, I love football. I consider it incredibly important. But there's a global pandemic on and we've just got to suck it up. Speaking of um, closing down the season for, for, for the next few months, what do you think, uh, and Fabio, uh, one of our viewers is asking this, what do you think about, will there be any new leagues or new teams that will write the history of our new decade or uh, will it be the same? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I would, you know, what I, I suppose what I would say is we have a choice in some ways, you know. We can continue with the same grotesquely unequal football world that we currently have in which all the old powers will continue to dominate in the same old way or we can take a moment of crisis as an opportunity for change um i would like in my more fantastical moments to imagine that were we to implement the strict carbon zero politics that we need in every dimension of society in football 
that some of the old guard might fall away and find it rather difficult. And that, you know, it will create an environment in which newer, more environmentally attuned and live football clubs um, can emerge uh, and do better than they have done hitherto. Um, but I think, you know, if we're going to really write a new chapter in um, in football's contribution to the uh, to the current situation, it's not about individual clubs and it's not about individual nations or tournaments. This is a collective, universal um, uh, effort. You know, it's got to be. This is really football, as I often say, and why I like it so. It's not about me. It's about us. And we need to think about us in the biggest, widest possible terms, you know. And it's not going to be one club or one nation or one organisation or one person that sorts this out. It's got to be about us, all of us. So if you were to have to make a prediction now, out of all the football clubs that can likely go bankrupt in the next few months due to the lack of gate receipts, etc., how many of those clubs do you think will take this opportunity to re-establish themselves, reinvent themselves according to the, the new? Well, there's an interesting question. I mean, it's fairly, I, I'm loath to speculate on who will or won't go bankrupt. Um, what I will say is that there is good news in the football world too. We have seen that the level of solidarity that football clubs and football fans can mobilise can be incredible. Here in Britain, the role of the food bank movement, which has a really major presence at uh, many, many football clubs, um, has been incredible. You know, in a, in a moment when food banks are desperately struggling to supply a population that's stuck inside, many of whom have lost their jobs and their income, football fans and football organisations are making a really serious contribution to that. And so too, I understand in Germany, where football ultra groups have been amongst the leading forces in creating mutual aid organisations in their cities. Um, and there has been some really great leadership um, on these questions, you know, from Liverpool Football Club in particular, um, but from others as well. So rather than dwelling on those who will go bust, um, I'm, I would say we have immense and really powerful resources of solidarity and ingenuity and social consciousness in the world of uh, football, if only we could tap into them and be our best rather than what we often are, which is the worst version of ourselves. Thanks, you. Um, then uh, our very own uh, FBA alumni, Kartik Shetty, asking, uh, what do you think about the growing inclination towards right-wing politics across the world and its impact on the plan you are talking about? Oh, man, that's such a big question. I mean, again, what I would say to Kartik is crises are a moment of opportunity. And sure, you know, as with 9-11, where the nationalist and militarist right across the planet used the crisis um, to implement all sorts of super authoritarian security measures and entrench their own power through expressing hatred and fear of the other, there is also a progressive response to crisis. You know, we have seen in the last two weeks that an idea like universal basic income, which has been poo-pooed for decades as impossible, unaffordable, suddenly I'm looking around the world and going, I'm seeing a lot of things that look pretty much like universal basic income to me. Um, and this is a moment of, of change. So 
of course, the right will grab their chance. And, you know, no more so than the football-loving Prime Minister of Hungary, Viktor Orban, who has effectively made himself the dictator of the country under, a, you know, ruling by decree in a state of emergency. Um, but there are other forces and opportunities at work. As I said right at the beginning of this, you know, lecture, the idea that we might actually say, you know what, economic imperatives need to take second place to social imperatives, to health imperatives you know, which is the heart of a progressive response, have suddenly become clear and tangible to many, many more people than they have done in the past. This is no guarantee of success. Crisis breed fear and division as well, of course. Um, and the football world has plenty of that. But we also have resources of solidarity that are emerging. So as ever, as I think I've probably said in class before, you know, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. Speaking of solidarity, um, Renato de Souza is asking, what's the role of society in, in uh, looking at this crisis that we're looking now? And, and what's the role of society to be part of the changes that, as you said, the FIFAs of this world, we're going to have to lose? That's an even bigger question. I mean, well, it depends on sort of what you mean by society. I mean, what, what I would say is that on the one hand, maybe one way of thinking about this is that um, at a moment like this, the leading force in acting appears to be the state. And of course, we all desperately need functioning, organized, uh, well-resourced states to deal with this problem, right? You need government and you need bureaucracies. Um, and that is true of also climate change. But it is simultaneously true that you need a healthy, diverse, active and ingenious civil society at the same time. And football is part of global civil society. It's a really important part of global civil society. And we can make a significant contribution. As I've said, we can make a significant contribution because the carbon footprint of global sport is really big, all right? I mean, no one's really done the maths, you know, but I have read reports that suggest that the carbon footprint of the Olympics alone is equivalent to New Zealand. Now, New Zealand's not that big, but hey, it's a signatory to the Paris Accords. Uh, and if that's just the IOC, you know, what is everybody else's when you tot it all up? So as part of global civil society, we have a major contribution that we can make practically and culturally. You know, football in its um, mobilization of solidarities, in its creation of collective identities, in its capacity to tell the most extraordinary stories of last minute change, reversal, when everything seems lost in football, suddenly it isn't. And we need narratives like that and we need energies like that. So, you know, that in the grand scheme of things, we can make a big difference. We need to think hard about it and we need to organize, but we can make a difference. Following up from that, I think uh, Eva Suarez's question then is uh, very interesting. How do you think the near future will look like for Stadia? Do you think people will still gather in football Stadia as they did until now? I think that all depends on whether we get a vaccine or not. I mean, I think once there's a vaccine, which I think is more likely than not, then certainly in the near future, yes, I think people will. In fact, I wonder whether people will return even more. I think of the end of the Second World War um, in Britain, when uh, once the war ended, 
football recorded its most gigantic audiences ever. I mean, there have never been so many people going to watch the football as went to watch it between 1945 and 1951. Because after an era, you know, you've lived through a state of emergency, you want the warmth and the humanity and the colour and the solidarity and the humour and the joy of being in a crowd. Um, Further down the line, you know, well, it depends how the world's epidemiology works out. I mean, if we have another epidemic, and like I said, you know, it's really important to remember this pandemic did not come out of nowhere. It is generated by the same structural conditions about the relationship of the global uh, economy above all the agricultural sector, you know, uh, to the global ecosystem. You know, there's been Ebola, there's been swine flu, there's been H1N1. There are more to come. Um, so if we want, you know, to be able to enjoy the unique psychic, emotional experience of being in a crowd at a football game, then we need to do our best to address these bigger, wider structural issues. I mean, who wants to go and watch football where you've got to keep a six-foot gap between you and everybody else in the crowd? Mm. Well, speaking of uh, consumer habits then, Kevin Pedersen is asking, do you think that sports would move more into a new digital area, area taking the current situation um, talking about augmented or virtual reality or esports. Good question. I mean, we're already going down that line anyway. I mean, I think you know um, clearly, you know, esports um, amongst um, you know the youth is increasingly popular. And no, we're not all at the sort of level of South Korea where you know um, the uh, an esport competition can pull a bigger crowd in a football stadium than a football match. Um, but interestingly, people still want to be in a crowd in those situations. Um, I think there's likely there is going to be more of that. I myself slightly struggle to understand the appeal, but I mean, I'm an old man, so I'm the last person who's useful to really tune into that. I mean, I think something, you know, something very serious will be lost if the transition is um, is so much it uh, is towards esport to the detriment of you know physical tangible sports but it has its role it has it it has its role to play in the kind of wider ecosystem of pleasures and purposes in this world um, but i think you know that kind of shift is quite a long you know some way down the line and we we need change right now and so we need to change our physical physical present sports rather than relying on esports as a kind of way of displacing them. Then uh, our very own uh, Isi Tangun, your colleague, our uh, financial strategy professor, is asking, what are your, your thoughts about the merging of national leagues in neighboring countries such as Holland, Belgium, Austria, Switzerland, Hungary, Romania? It's a bit off topic, but in the light of the financial consequences that this epidemic might cause, what do you think? Uh, I personally have no problem at all. Um, I mean, you know, the, the people who have to be consulted above all are the fans of the clubs who are involved because it's their tournaments and their histories and their narratives that are being changed. Um, and so they are the people, and there's no point doing these things if one of the results is that everyone goes, oh, I can't be bothered to watch this anymore. I'm not interested. So, you know, um, the most important people in this are the fans and how do they feel about it? And if people feel good about it, then I think that's fine. 
Um, I think the other thing that needs to be taken into account, and this is perfectly possible in Europe, is if we're going to do that, we cannot have more air travel as a consequence, right? And I understand that, of course, you know, there are longer distances, but, you know, uh, Europe has a really serious, dense rail network. Electric coaches are possible. So um, I would um, say, you know, I personally don't have a problem. I see the financial advantages. I also see the cultural downside. Other people need to make a call on that. But what we can't have is this, you know, is more clubs being like Manchester United and flying from Manchester to Newcastle rather than taking an electric coach. And so I wouldn't want to see a bigger geographical area for football leagues leading to more production of carbon. But with that proviso, I myself don't, you know, I don't have a problem. I think it could be it could be a useful solution. Okay, thank you. Um, Maria Laura Ordonez is asking, and she quote she's quoting Harari's need for global cooperation uh, to overcome this crisis. Do you see FIFA as the guarantor of practices exchange to tackle general and local industry problems? In my dreams, I mean, you know, it's like it's really good. You know, if we didn't have FIFA, it would be necessary to invent it. Um, football is a global game with global markets, global flows of players, etc. And therefore, um, you have to have a global regulatory body, and it's good that we have one. FIFA has not hitherto covered itself in glory when it comes to making big structural change this kind. Um, you know, I mean, the amount of time that it's taken to, you know, sort out just like controlling trafficking of youth and dealing with um, third party ownership of football players, which are piffly con concerns. So I think um, FIFA absolutely has a role to play. I mean, I think part of the issue is that FIFA's global reputation for probity um, so profoundly undermined the era of Blatter has not been sufficiently repaired. And um, to my mind, the greatest energies of FIFA over the last few years have been about raising money and moving money around. I mean, I would remind everybody that Infantino basically won um, the presidency by shouting at the Congress, the money of FIFA is not my money. It is not the money of FIFA president. It's your money, right, which got the biggest cheer from the uh, FA delegates. And... I think FIFA, if it wants to lead in this zone, once again, it needs to clean up its own act. Um, so the potential is there. And, you know, FIFA has really serious powers of control over football associations. I mean, you know, it, it's really potent. If you are FIFA and you say, you know, you National Football Association X, you don't sign up to the UN Convention on Sport and Climate Change, you can't participate in international sport. That is really serious. That's weight. That's power. And um, I would like FIFA, and that's why I think FIFA can, and indeed, you know, UEFA, Commabol, et cetera, play a really significant role because that is a very serious stick. Um, but, of course, this, you know, this requires more than sticks. It needs carrots. And um, it needs um, serious leadership. Um, and uh, FIFA and some of the other regional confederations um, remain mired 
in uh, corruption and incompetence. And we have to deal with that if they are to have the moral authority, the institutional charisma to be able to deliver on, you know, the potential changes that they can make happen. You touched on money. Um, so Maximilian Ola is asking, what are your thoughts about the long-term effects this pandemic can have relating to wages of uh, football players? What a good question. What a good question. So let me preface uh, my thoughts on that by saying when it comes to wages, our first concern and thought should be with all the low paid people in football. One of the things that this crisis has revealed, certainly in Britain, but I think everywhere, is who are the really essential people in this world? They're the people in the supermarkets. They're the people who drive trucks. They're the people who clean hospitals. They're the nurses and, of course, the doctors. And many of those folks are amongst the most poorly paid in those economies with the worst working conditions and the least security. And I would like um, all of their equivalents in the world of football to be at the front of the queue. Again, we've seen both good practice and bad practice. Some clubs, Liverpool, Brighton, I believe Manchester United as well, have said, OK, all you folks on zero hours contracts who do the catering and the stewarding, without which none of this is possible, um, we will keep paying you until the end of the season. And I think that is a magnificent, uh, but it should be the norm, should absolutely be the norm. So um, I just think we need to, you know, remember that. And it's something, you know, there is a lot of low pay in the football industry. And, you know, I don't care how good Lionel Messi is, without that army of low paid workers, the spectacle does not happen. And we need to respect those people and we need to pay them and we need to treat them right. Um, beyond that, I think it is inevitable, you know, that players and agents, let's not forget who are the people getting a big chunk of players' wages, are going to take a hit. I mean, you know, in the Premier League, it's around 70% of turnover ends up with players. You know, in the Championship, it's like near 85 90%. So um, there aren't cuts to be made anywhere else. If the money coming in from um, certainly broadcasting looks like it's going to diminish and possibly from sponsors and obviously from gate money and so on. I mean, where else is it going to, you know, they've got to take a hit, you know. Um, uh, and whether this in the long term, I mean, I think there is going to have to be, if we are to meet our environmental and social commitments, there is going to have to be a reshuffling of the mind football. Um, and this is not to say, you know, I am not saying that top players should not earn great money. I'm really not, you know, and I'm not jealous of it. Either. I think, you know, Lionel Messi, you know, yeah, sure, you should earn millions. I don't have a problem with that. I also think everybody needs to pay their tax bills. So the whole era of tax evasion, which is widespread in global football, needs to end. Um, but I think the ratios are out of hand and we need to look like um, maybe something closer, you know, to where you are in the NBA, which is, you know, with a wage cap, you know, they're pushing down players are getting kind of 60%. I would like to see players getting a smaller percentage of the take. And let me emphasise, not so that the owners of football clubs can then take a bigger profit, which is what's going on primarily in the NBA, MLB, et cetera. 
Um, and, you know, it may well be that wage and salary caps are the way forward on this. None of this is to suggest, as I said, the top players, you know, are global stars, without which, you know, the spectacle is not the spectacle, you know, should be richly rewarded. But I think we have got, there has to be a, a re-leveling of where we've been. Thank you, David. I think um, that's a good thought to, to wrap this webinar up. Uh, thank you so much for your time and interest. Thank you, everybody, as well, for tuning in and, and asking your, your questions. Uh, there's a lot to think about. There's a lot to take home from this. And uh, let's hope that together we can uh, push the industry forward to make the right decisions and make sure that next time an epidemic or a crisis happens, that we're better prepared for it. Have a great week ahead. Stay safe and take care. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. And make sure to follow FBA on our social media channels to not miss out on the next episodes coming soon. See you next time.